When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate is joined by musician and music historian Brooks Long to kick off their David Ritz book club with a discussion of his book, Brother Ray, His Own Story, the classic autobiography he co-wrote with Ray Charles. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Brooks Long, and we're going to discuss Brother Ray, Ray Charles' own story by Ray Charles and David Ritz. Brooks, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, um, boy, there's so much to tell. Um, <laughs> you were proud for this. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I guess, soul-based singer-songwriter in uh, in Baltimore, and you know, I also done some... Uh, uh, community uh, art stuff um, in in town. I actually don't live in Baltimore now, but but I, I'm still heavily involved there. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been, been playing music for I don't know twenty years or so, and um, um, yeah, uh, I uh, my <laughs> elevator speech is is off but uh, <laughs> but I've also done some some work in you know music folklore uh, uh, in in Baltimore um, but I'm interested in it all over the place so so yeah I uh, I love your show and I'm glad to be here and Brooks introduced himself online uh, as a listener of the show, had some yeah. suggestions and a correction, and we got to talking, sure. and, and we thought we would do a series of uh, discussions about books co-authored or ghostwritten by David Ritz. And I've had David on the show, great honor, great interview, um, busy, busy man, he's still busting out two or three books a year, so um, it's been pretty difficult to get him back, and he's got so many books we need to cover to, to do what the show wants to do that... 
Brooks has graciously volunteered. And uh, this is David Ritz's first book, Brother Ray, Autobiography of Ray Charles, came out in the late 70s, uh, reissued and updated shortly after Ray Charles's death in the 2000s. And it's a really solid autobiography. Um, this is uh, David Ritz talked to us about told us his story uh, of how he introduced himself to Ray Charles by way of sending Braille telegrams to get around Ray's handlers and get the the deal cut. You know, he sent him so many lengthy Braille telegrams that he got Ray's attention and started a conversation and, and produced this book. So we're going to use that as our platform. It's not the only source we're using, obviously, because Ray Charles lived a big, big life, and there's no way to cover it in just one book. No. <laughs> <laughs> or even one podcast episode. But <laughs> no, we'll definitely fun trying. Yeah, and so um, the the thing with Ray Charles is, I, I think he's somewhat overshadowed today compared to James Brown, who's a, a sl- slightly later contemporary. James mm-hmm. Brown's funk innovations, obviously, you know, found the bedrock of hip hop, and I think people currently ranked James Brown up there with Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby as the absolute, you know, sort of 20th century master. But Ray Charles, I think you can make a strong case deserves to be up there for he's widely credited with inventing soul music by combining R&B and gospel, which were already pretty closely related. But his his hit song for Atlantic, I Got a Woman, yeah. you know, co- <laughs> covered by Elvis Presley and so forth. And, and, you know, What I Say, which was an enormous influence on the Beatles. And you know, frankly, I, without Ray Charles, I don't know if you've got Sam Cooke coming over into crossing over into pop. I don't know if you get Otis Redding, Motown, et cetera, et cetera. He just blew the doors wide open in a way that's really hard to fathom today because I guess before you had Ray Charles, you had Nat King Cole, who was his model. Sure. Um, but nobody had really had really blown it open quite the way he did. Nat King Cole crossed over to a white audience. Sammy Davis Jr. crossed over to a white audience. But Nat King Cole lost a lot of himself on the way in a way that I don't think Ray Charles did. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Certainly there was a, a side to to Nat King Cole that that you heard when, you know, he was primarily on the, the race records charts. And then there was the way that you heard him once once he was in the pop field, I wouldn't say that uh, those, you know, those one side is is not him and one side was. But what Ray was able to do was keep putting out for a while, uh, you know, raw, filthy stuff, while also, you know, putting out smoother stuff at the same time. You, you know, it, it it all happened at once. And and arguably his roughest rock and his filthiest song what i say that was his big breakthrough hit and 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 ray ray's got an odd relationship to rock and roll and he talks about in the book yeah he denies that he's a founding father of rock and roll at the same time he's part of the first class of 10 rock and rollers that was put in the rock and roll hall of fame uh in 1987 when they opened it up and for valid reasons i got a woman you know is an early song that's covered by elvis has a massive impact but Ray kind of comes out of this Louis Jordan era of R&B when it's not entirely clear that R&B and jazz are going to bifurcate in the way that they did. And Ray yeah. continued to put out jazz albums throughout the 50s and and play jazz, had a big jazz style, big band all the way up close to the end of his life. And so 
he played to a slightly older audience. And another thing I think that's interesting about Ray is he has a string of R&B hits in 54, 55, 56, then kind of goes quiet in 57, 58. Then the peak years of, of the first rock and roll boom comes mm-hmm. back big in 59 with what I say at a time when Paul Anka, Anka and others, you know, sure. Frankie Avalon, and, and they're kind of watering down rock and roll. Ray uh, is at that point at his rockinist. And so it, it, it's very interesting. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I hear you. Definitely Ray swung to to a crowd that that wanted to feel more adult and definitely um ray's ray's passion was i can't imagine there were too many other uh rhythm and blues singers at the time that were singing with more passion than he was but there's something about it that is still under control it's like you know when you go to when you go to church and, you know, you're hearing the first couple of songs. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't, I don't mean that as any disrespect at all. He still really digs, digs in there, but, you know, just a couple of years after uh, Ray really busts out, uh, I think we, we might talk about Bumps Blackwell a little bit later, but Bumps finds, uh, discovers Little Richard and he thinks he's got another Ray Charles on his hands. And uh, and it turns out that no, they have Little Richard, and Little Richard <laughs> is beyond wild. I'm beyond passionate. He's wild. He's he's nuts, um, really. <laughs> uh, and and all you know the the best great fun ways, and you know that that's like the the point in church where you know it, 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 it's just it, it's just ecstatic and a, a free-for-all and uh could we even say orgasmic absolutely uh, uh which is which is a um you know adults don't like to think of themselves as sex craze uh <laughs> speak for yourself speak for yourself but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but I actually ray that. did um but he, he was able to control it and make it feel more cool uh little richard didn't have time for cool <laughs> Definitely not. And, and, you know, little Richard has his conversion to, to back to the church at the peak of his career in 1957. Elvis is drafted. Buddy Holly goes down in a plane crash. Chuck Berry goes to jail. Ray Charles manages to avoid that kind of downfall until well into the 60s and, and never really, to my mind, drew the same kind of ire from the authorities that, that, that so many of the first class of rock and rollers did. And, you know, he, he, even though he runs into legal trouble with his his massive heroin habit, he gets pretty good deals from the judges. They don't crush him the way they did Chuck Berry, and you know they're certainly not the kind of media animus against him that somebody like Jerry Lee Lewis faced. So, yeah, you know, um, totally totally unique individual. Even though yeah. he's um, amidst this class of people, I mean, there's so many contemporaries of his that come out of the church. He's slightly older than most of them. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like Clyde McFadder, Little Willie John, sure. Sam Cooke, all these guys. Ray's always a little bit distant. But let's go ahead and hear our first Ray Charles song. This is a Baby Let Me Hold Your Hand from 1951 on Swing Time Records. Baby, let me hold your hand. 
Until I make you understand Oh, baby Baby, let me hold your hand And that's Ray Charles doing Baby, Let Me Hold Your Hand from 1951. And... You can definitely hear not just the Nat King Cole, but also the Charles Brown, the singer of Mm -hmm. Drift and Blues and Merry Christmas Baby, which, like Edward told us, was the biggest selling uh, black record until Thriller. You know, Ray Charles is one of these cats who's so talented that he can do anything. And oftentimes artists with that kind of raw talent have a hard time finding their own voice. And Ray Charles is no exception. And that was a big frustration with him. He had a number of minor R&B hits in the late 40s, early 50s, but it wasn't until Atlantic buys his contract. And not even immediately when he's with Atlantic, but but he doesn't find his own voice until 1954 with I Got a Woman. But let's talk about his childhood a little bit. And that's something that the book spends quite a bit of time on. And Ray Charles, obviously blind, but he doesn't go blind until he's seven. He's born into extreme poverty in rural oh, yeah. Georgia, but later moves to Florida. His his father is not really a factor in his life, um, but he's got two mothers, both his father's wife, who's not his biological mother, um, the, uh, a woman, Mary Jane, that he calls mother. And then uh, he's got his mother, Aretha, that he calls mother. And Mama, he calls her Mama, and they're and they're both uh, involved with Bailey Robinson, who was a railroad man and wasn't around. And immediately in the book, he starts talking about his younger brother George. And as soon as I hear that, and I'm like, I haven't heard of George Charles. I knew we were in trouble. Um, it, it brought back visions of Johnny Cash's biography and the horrible death of his brother in a sawmill. You know, Rick Hall of of fame studios and Muscle Shoals and his brother uh, died similarly. And so little George drives right in front of Ray before Ray goes blind, drowns in a wash tub. And, you know, it's just it's just thing after thing. But but Ray feels no self-pity. He's go ahead. He's a strong, strong character. He he is a a strong character. You have to. You have to think that no nobody can can quite be that strong, but he did. You know, he uh, his mother did uh, put some strong foundations in him. Incredibly independent man, uh, and and also just brilliant, and knew he was brilliant too. Uh, didn't mind didn't mind showing it, even if he didn't like the the genius label, and. Uh, uh, it seems like uh, Ray wants you to know that even at a really young age, his brother George was was quite brilliant too. You know, putting together um, you know different complex mechanical things when you know he was a little kid. Um, uh, yeah, so- the neighbors would come by and, and listen to George do division, which you know, as a three or four year old kid. Uh- yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's. Uh- those are some some special kids to to come out of uh, of where they came from, and that that must have been a, a special mom too. Um, but uh, but you know when when you're in that kind of poverty, um, you you've you you, you got to turn it on. Um, 
and uh, he doesn't really talk about it that much. But you know, the depression is 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 going on while while he's around, and um, every everybody was was in devastation. Uh, that uh, that bootstraps mentality was was a part of like a a mental survival thing um and uh absolutely uh, and and you know they moved from albany georgia down to greensville florida but the one thing about ray charles that's very different from say james brown who's grown up in this uh, north uh, brown is up on the south carolina georgia border but james brown's got a life of privation in every way because his family isn't strong together and his father's probably abusive whereas ray's father is absent but between his two mothers his biological mother mama rita and his his the legal wife of his father, Mary Jane Robinson, who he called mother, uh, he's got a very loving family and they've got a pretty cohesive, it seems like they've got the classic sort of cohesive, culturally cohesive country upbringing. Like he yeah. grew up in a small town, knew the neighbors, knew the church folks, they go to church every Sunday, that's where Ray's first exposed to music and obviously the gospel music he learns in church is going to be a big factor. But immediately he's hearing boogie woogie piano from a guy named Mr. Pitt, Mm -hmm. uh, who who runs the general store and who takes Ray under his wing from day one and shows him things on the piano. And so he's, and he, and Ray talks about this, that music was inside him from the beginning and is this palpable force in his life. And that makes me think of Aretha Franklin. She's the only other person that comes to mind. Sure. Sure. Yeah that kind of talent where it's just obvious to everybody from day one this is a special child with a special gift and you know um but ray's blindness complicates that and his mama uh, emphasizes you know ray you got to look after yourself and she's letting him chop wood he's riding bicycles yeah um, you know running all over and, and a lot of neighbors are tutting that you know she's she's being too free with this child, but it, it turns out it was absolutely the right thing to do. But sends him off uh, to school, to a school for the blind, and I believe Augusta, is it Augusta, Florida? I'm, I'm blanking on where the school was, but sends him off uh, to a, what is it, Tallahassee? Um, yeah, it might be Tallahassee, but sends him off to school for the blind and and it, and it reminds me of a christmas carol when ebenezer scrooge is the only kid who has to stay home on christmas break right <laughs> charles was very much in that same boat. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah whereas his little mama couldn't afford to to come to send him you know train fare to come home for christmas yeah. break so he had to stay at the school by himself but unlike ebenezer scrooge he doesn't turn to the dark side he very much uh stays engaged with people and, and music is a big part of his his line and you know, and then school. Not only does he learn to socialize with other blind kids and carry himself, you know, and, and, and navigate that social pecking order, but he's exposed to classical music. And they don't talk mm-hmm. about it in the book, but he learned classical music by way of braille, which is an incredible thing to imagine doing. Yeah, he, he's he's uh, memorizing, uh, you know, whole passages uh, through through braille, which uh, is an amazing thing um you know for us sighted people uh you know maybe um for for certainly certainly uh ray charles in in the book just sort of takes all this for granted there's all these crazy things or things that you know to me my sighted self uh would consider to be really really challenging things if you're blind 
Um, but, you know, he talks about it like, yeah, you know, I was just uh, walking down the street. You memorize, you know, little cracks in the street. and You know, you keep on moving. And it's like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you ride your bike. You know, I know how I know, you know, what the terrain is, you know, when I'm riding. So it's fine. And uh, um, and you you almost forget sometimes um, when you're reading about his life that the guy is blind. Um, and yeah, it really is incredible that he can just, you know, uh, read some braille and, and memorize all of that and make it happen on the, on the, uh, on the piano. And of course, you know, if he messed up, it seemed like it was pretty strict. Uh, if he, you know, messed something up, then, uh, uh, he was going to know about it, um, from his from his teachers absolutely and that kind of disciplinarian streak is something that carries over to ray's life as a band leader like one of the documentaries i was watching you know he said that a complaint he sometimes got was that he would hear secondhand from new musicians in the band he doesn't even know i'm in the band and and they say well why don't you try playing a wrong note (laughs) then mr charles (laughs) is is gonna uh, know you're in the band real fast and and you know that that Discipline is definitely a theme that runs throughout his story, and oh. and uh, you know it's Somewhat. there's yeah yes <laughs> musical discipline and professional discipline, but personal discipline um, is 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 a different matter. Although he never let it pre- prevent him from taking care of business, no. and at, at quite a young age, I think he's fourteen when Mama passes away, and he's he's at school, he's unable to be with her, and this is the one time he shows that he discusses real weakness and it took him like a week. He basically goes catatonic when he gets home. And one of the ladies, one of the church ladies from the community basically slaps him to his senses. And I think it's very telling that Ray came from a community and and a church community and the people who looked at, looked out for each other. And despite the material poverty, they had real community and, and, and that's just bottomless strength there. And let's go ahead and hear our second song. And this is, um, we've been talking about a lot and I thought I considered picking some other songs, but I think I got a woman is just too pivotal to Ray's career in American music. So this is, I got a woman from 1954 in Atlantic. Oh yeah. I got a woman way over town Good to me Oh yeah She give me money When I'm in need Yeah, she's a kind of Friend indeed and that was Ray Charles' legendary I Got a Woman on Atlantic Records. And that's the record where he comes in the studio. He's got his own band. He knows exactly what he wants to do. The first couple singles he had put out on Atlantic, the first one, Mess Around, was one that was actually written by Ahmed Erdogan, the owner of Atlantic Records. But, you know, they, they, they knew Ray needed direction. And much as they would later help Aretha Franklin find herself by getting back to Seoul in the 60s, they were aiming to get Ray Charles closer to, you know, gut bucket blues and up tempo R and B, but it was only when Ray himself had the vision for what he wanted to do and puts I Got a Woman together that he really crystallizes as Ray Charles invents soul music. You know, you got everybody's listening to the Sam Cooke, you can imagine. 
we know Elvis Presley was listening to it because he cuts a cover of it oh, in, in very short order. But let's get back to our story. And the, the next step Ray does is he leaves school early and goes on his own to a number of cities. I think he goes to Jacksonville and Orlando and just hits it. I mean, you know, has maybe a tiny suitcase and goes out there as a blind kid to make his own living in music. And that's not something that would have been possible just a couple decades later. This is still an era where if you can play the piano, you're going to find some work. You're not going to starve, even yeah. if you're bone poor. But he's he's able to make a living playing piano in these mid-sized Florida cities. They're much smaller than they would become in our era. It, it should definitely be said that uh, – that, um, it took a lot of guts for a, a blind teenager to, you know, go hop around to different cities and uh, and find gigs. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of confidence and, you know, a lot of love of music. <clears throat> However, you are absolutely correct. Um, um, the idea that he would be able to to hop around and pick up the gigs that he'd need to to you know halfway pay the rent um you know even 15 years ago uh is yeah it's it's hard to imagine it but uh today oh man um uh it, it would just be rough so yeah he he definitely had that mix of of gumption and also just uh was was doing his thing in in the right era um for when you know the the music industry was hot looking for for talented players um yes and it's not even really the industry it's organic it's club by club anytime people wanted to dance at this point you could go to a juke joint and listen to records on the jukebox but yeah that couldn't compete with a live band and so almost any place people wanted to see dance wanted to go and dance they had to pay a live band so there's an opportunity for somebody like ray charles he struggles in florida he fails a big audition with lucky millinder who's a major band leader of the time and and that's a real wake-up call to him because i think as talented as he was he probably took it for granted that he would pass that audition and it was a real cold slap in the face and he realized he needed much more seasoning and ends up going to seattle of all places like he he I guess he was intimidated by New York and Chicago, even L.A., but he, he goes up to Seattle and he meets Quincy Jones. And, and you mentioned Bumps Blackwell, who's later famous for producing yeah. Little Richard and, and Sam Cooke. So he's it's already one of these stories where you've got a mega talented person who's attracting mega talented people before they're famous. You see this over and over and over again in the stories we talk about on the show. And Ray Charles is no exception, puts together the McSun Trio. And begins to have minor hits. He's on downbeat records and then swing time records. He travels back and forth from Seattle to L.A., moves to L.A. for a while. But like we said, he's he's very much trapped. I don't want to say trapped, but he's he's locked into being an acolyte of Nat King Cole and Charles Brown. And this is one of the things I wanted to talk about with you. We've been discussing this a little bit in preparing for the show. And to me, you know, part of Ray Charles rejecting the notion that he's a rock and roller is that he saw himself as somebody in the tradition of that King Cole, tradition of Louis Jordan. And Louis Jordan was a swing band musician before he's the father of R&B. 
there's not this big border between jazz and pop and rock that would later come to exist. And Ray Charles very much saw himself in the mainstream as somebody who's a jazz-based pop performer. And um, I was going to argue that he was kind of the last of that breed. But you argue that he actually inspired many successors. Oh, I, I, I think in a way you're, you're absolutely right. And, I, and you're – 100% right about the way that Ray feels about himself. Um, I think um, a lot of times uh, musical innovators just aren't able to quite see over the mountain that they're climbing. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're they're not able to see the paradigm shift that, that they create themselves. Um, uh, and that's, you know, not to say that, uh, that he shouldn't cherish his, his jazz skills, but he was going somewhere else. Um, uh, but he needed those jazz skills to, to be who he was. Uh, and in so many ways, uh, Ray Charles is just an artist that's sort of, uh, like in these in-between worlds, you know, modern and, and, and old school. And there was a time where you just, you had to have uh, jazz, jazz chops. You had to have these chops to, um, to really show that, that, uh, that you deserved your gigs and, you know, you deserve the, the spotlight. Um, and he had it, um, 100%. Uh, but he also had this raw thing too, um, that, uh, just couldn't, couldn't be denied. He was able to, to, uh, mix, uh, aesthetics together in, in a way that that's really uh, pleasing and he was always commercial um, so he loved Art Tatum but he was never gonna all the way 100% commit to Art Tatum but he still admired the craft enough now you know when we start talking about somebody like uh, Chuck Berry who was known for you know not always playing in tune all the time that's never gonna happen with Ray Charles you know you might listen to a you see a Chuck Berry gig and he, you know, he didn't play in tune the whole time and people are still smiling like, Oh man, that's great. Ray would have said, <laughs> man, that sucked. <laughs> you know, what the hell was he doing? Um, uh, it, it, and it, it, this really goes back to uh, how he felt about himself and how uh, he didn't see himself as a rock and roll uh, musician. And in a lot of ways he's right. Uh, because, um, because the aesthetic before rock and roll, at least in the mainstream, um, was that you gotta have chops and you gotta be a master of what you do. You can't just grab something and bang on it and, 
and you know think that you're doing anything no 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 you you have to you got to go through the motions you gotta you gotta learn some stuff you you have to to, you have to be able to play the songbook yeah you yeah exactly you got to be able to play that songbook and there are moments in here where where ray is saying you know we really got to start letting artists be who they are. We got to, you know, let things flow. Don't try and force the artist to do this or that. Just let them do what they do. And then a couple of pages later, he's saying, but let me tell you something. <laughs> <You've gotta> <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, you know, master your instrument, you know, if, if there there's this uh, world that, um, that rock and roll and later hip hop sort of, obliterates um well to a certain extent with hip-hop and we'll talk about how ray takes keeps that alive after a quick break from a sponsor and as you were saying ray is somebody who sees himself not in this new rock and roll rebel tradition but as a continuation of the tradition of uh, american entertainers very much in the steps of nat king cole who was very much in the steps of frank sinatra and bing crosby and yeah and 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 had not only you know ray was always very focused on on appealing to a black audience and, and knew he was delivering the goods that they wanted but he he had bigger sights he wanted to be an all-round entertainer an absolute superstar yeah. and i think uh one 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 uh quick point that I, I think ties into what you're saying david ritz at the end of the um uh the later version uh equates ray with with Louis Armstrong, who near the beginning of his career has, you know, this big explosion, this big innovation. Um, and there's a period of time where everything is just new. And then he settles into, um, you know, this using that innovation to, to spread himself out sort of horizontally and uh, what was once startling now becomes like a comfort. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of what Louis Armstrong did. And, and Ray Charles was, was that way too. He, he didn't want to rock the boat after a while and he didn't really need to. Absolutely. And, and I've always sort of underrated Ray's jazz stuff and preparing for the show, I went back to listen to some more of it. And it was really, I was watching a 1986 documentary, which is at least half live performance footage from Ray with a symphony orchestra playing. He's got a, he's got a rock rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, but then the rest of it is a symphony orchestra. He doesn't have his big band. It's, there's mm-hmm. no horns. It's all strings. And I realized what he was doing with that jazz stuff. He was laying the groundwork to establish himself as a serious musician at a time when there was no audience for serious rock. The the rock revolution happens in the late 60s with albums like Sgt. Pepper's and later on Marvin Gaye's, you know, what's going on. There's no analog for that. If you wanted to be a serious album artist, you had to cut jazz, classical or folk, basically and he cut jazz albums. He also did some big band albums. And then, of course, has his massive crossover success on ABC Paramount uh, with country albums. And I think those jazz albums were – it was a sort of a strategy where he establishes himself as a gut bucket R&B gospel guy with, with I Got a Woman. Then he establishes himself as a legit jazz guy, somebody who can go to the Newport Jazz Festival and more than hold his own, that can steal yeah. the show, that can you know play with Milt Jackson, do duet albums, 
And the term soul originally applied to jazz as much as any other genre. And and Ray Charles is very critical in that. Right. And then when he does the country stuff and crosses over to this massive pop audience, he's fully established. He's a supper club guy. He's a guy who's, you know, if if like studying Motown, I've always been frustrated. Why do they have the Supremes doing these you know, Broadway songs. And why are they trying to do, you know, uh, playing at the Copacabana and stuff like that? It's because Barry Gordy had watched what Ray Charles did and that King Cole and others. And what seemed like the only road to a, to a career with real longevity was breaking into those supper clubs and being an A-list act that could present jazz. And, you know, when I was watching Ray doing that live show from 1986, one of the songs he does is you can't take that away from me, which I believe it's a Cole Porter or Gershwin song. I associate it with Frank Sinatra. Ray does it absolutely brilliantly. And to somebody from my mom's generation, Ray's generation, the silent generation between the World War II people and the boomers, that really meant a lot. That meant you were a credible artist. You were somebody serious. You were somebody respectable. And, you know, I remember my mom and dad having uh, the Ray Charles Modern Country album in there with their Mahalia Jackson. I mean, they had like six albums and it was, you know, mm-hmm. the new Christy Minstrels. Kind of yeah, and, and Ray Charles and, and Mahalia Jackson and, and just a couple other people. And they, you know, they saw themselves as open-minded liberal types and, um, you know, but not big music heads. And, and Ray broke through to that. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's a real testimony to his sagacity, I think. And, and, and you know, it, he does great with Atlantic and, and has a great run with Atlantic, but he gets his offer from ABC Paramount to own his own masters and, and to make an enormous royalty rate and basically becomes a wealthy man with this record deal. And he delivers on it first with George on my mind, Hoagie Carmichael's great ballad. And, and then that's, again, another example of, of what I'm talking about, where he's confronting the, quote unquote, great American songbook, the Broadway song tradition, art song tradition, that people like Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra and his hero, Artie Shaw, uh, yeah. had, had, had made. And that's another thing. Ray goes back and forth and talks about white music in different ways throughout the book. Mm-hmm. But he's very open that he was a kid who listened to the Grand Ole Opry every Saturday night, that he was a legit country fan from day one. He, he of course, grew up with gospel and, and the church. He's a big jazz fan. He loves, you know, you mentioned Art Tatum. We talked about Nat Cole and Charles Brown. But he also loved, you know, Frank Sinatra and that, that and Artie Shaw, uh, the jazz, the swing band leader. And, and I only recently realized from talking to the Sinatra biographer, James Kaplan, that Artie Shaw was one of the first people to create this notion of the great American songbook, that he, that those songs have been seen as new hits until Artie Shaw comes along and, and, and plays songs that are a few years old because they're the best. And, and that allows this repertoire to, to survive for a couple decades longer than it would have normally. And Ray's right in there and very aware of that. And yeah, Go ahead. I think um, he, along with with everybody in his generation, um, they grew up with with all of this stuff. And uh, the radio was a really, really big deal. Um, and and you know, if if you're able to to tune into the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, you're going to do it. That's that's music, you know, in your living room without having the band. <laughs> you know, you can even turn it up or turn it down if you want to. Um, and you don't uh, have to pay for records. It's, and you, you bought the radio, you, it's there. 
you don't have to pay for records. Everybody knew these songs. Uh, there's a there's a book I'm forgetting the author right now, but it's called Segregating Sounds, and uh, it's a really great look at at how um, it, it, it's it's trying to get people to see differently about the Southern musical landscape, um, or, you know, pretty much um, throughout the 20th century and, and a little bit before. Um, every, everybody was listening to everything. It's not just like, you know, black guys and black people were sitting around listening to the blues and jazz all the time, and white people listened to uh, to country and stuff. No, all of this is happening all over the place, even on the streets, but especially on the radio. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he absolutely was doing this for crossover success. He he knew that uh, it was going to get him there, um, although he didn't start out doing that stuff. So he knew that, you know, I, I can't start off doing it. I, uh, they can't take that away from me. But eventually I'm going to be popular enough where I'm going to do this and people will think differently uh, about me. But at the same time, he loved that stuff. Um, and, and really grew up with it, um, in a way that I think is hard for modern audiences to get, get their heads around, um, that, uh, that technology as well as just, you know, community, uh, was really exposing people to wider things than, than we would think. Absolutely. And let's hear one of his first hits from ABC Paramount. This is Percy Mayfield's Hit the Road, Jack. Ray Charles doing Percy Mayfield's Hit the Road Jack, and you hear the Raylettes here. And this is something he's doing. He starts his own band in Texas. Uh, David Fathead Newman, his tenor saxophonist, is kind of the anchor of that, uh, his right hand man all the way through. And, and, you know, Ray, as a singer, songwriter, and arranger, what he needs is a lead voice. And, and, and Fathead Newman is one of several uh, that fills that role for him. But the Raylettes come in as his counterpart. Oh, yeah. As as a very much something out of the church, that call and response thing that goes back to the black gospel tradition. And, you know, this is a massive, massive number one hit and establishes Ray, you know, this this trifecta of what I say as this last Atlantic single and then Georgia on my mind and hit the road, Jack. Yeah. yeah, just boom, 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 really puts him at the top of the music field. And then when he follows it up with modern sounds in country western and um, now I'm blanking on the Don Gibson song that, that is his absolute biggest song of his career. But Oh, is that Crying Time? Or, uh, no, or, or, um, oh, uh, I Can't Stop I Loving can't stop You. I Can't Stop Loving You, right. Yeah. right. 
Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, Carl Hagstrom Miller is the guy who wrote Segregating Sound, which is still and thank you, yeah, on my to read list. But yeah, so yeah. so Ray just absolutely conquers the world in this period, and uh, the book does a great job of covering all the stuff. But and and then and then his struggles with heroin uh, become a big part of the narrative, and he's arrested, I think, in '61, and again '60. Four, and then 65, he has to take a year off, put himself in the hospital, you know, beg for clemency from the judges, but he gets it. And um, he's never quite the same hit maker that he was before, but he, he does come back with some hits. And this is one area where the book kind of disappointed me. And I was curious as to your take on it, because he follows up his comeback. He's got multiple songs um, by Ashford and Simpson yeah. uh, who are, who are going to go on to, to become, you know, the, the, really the second wave, a huge part of the second wave of Motown along with Norman Whitfield. And, um, and there was another woman that co-wrote those songs with them, Joe, Joe Amistad. Amistad. Yes. And these are just classic songs that directly confront his drug problems. Let's go get stoned. <laughs> yeah. And I don't need no doctor. And they're not massive hits, but they meant very much established Ray as unbowed he's he's playing up-to-date material and he's <laughs> indirectly addressing you know his problems and not apologizing you know not backing down at all um and no and <laughs> it's 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 just incredible that the strength that comes through uh with ray charles is just it's inspiring. There's no other way around it. And unlike James Brown, who's got that kind of strength through the first half of his career, James Brown yeah, loses his son. Apart. Yeah. Yeah. He loses his son and, and discovers PCP and it totally falls apart for the rest yeah. of his life. And he becomes this sad figure. Ray Charles never does that. Ray Charles has the money that he earned from his ABC Paramount deal. He he basically accomplished everything Sam Cooke looked like he was about to accomplish before he got himself killed. Hit the satellite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and you know, Ray's got his own recording studio. He's he's got his own operation. He's a, a popular, popular touring act to the end of his life. And this is something and you might be too young to remember this the way I do, but Ray Charles was ever present in the seventies and eighties. I mean, he was just a celebrity. He was on the Muppet show. He was on good morning America. If you saw Ray Charles on TV, you were just like, Oh, of course, Ray Charles is on TV. All is right with the world. I mean, it was really still that way. Uh, there's only so much of the eighties I remember, but (laughs) he was, (laughs) he was still around in the nineties. Um, yeah. uh, when I when I think about some of the first musicians that I can remember, definitely that Diet Pepsi uh, commercial is like I still remember the melody. Uh huh. You know, you got the right one, baby. <laughs> like, I you know I I associated Diet Pepsi with with Ray Charles and Ray Charles with Diet Pepsi. Um, you know, and they just don't give those uh, those endorsements away. To uh, to anybody. Um, yeah, he was uh, earning his paycheck on that. I mean, absolutely, you know. and he was all about the paycheck too. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, I, I I think you're you're right. There's there aren't many um, musicians or individuals, period, that that are able to you know uh, is, is maintain their addiction and maintain their their careers and their sanity and all and also um you know 
get get beyond it and survive and have a a really thriving career uh, as well. Um, you know, Ray throughout the book is unapologetic um, ab- about what he did, and uh, also you know maintained that uh, that you know I can go on without it, uh, which which I think. I think those things were seem to be mainly true. Although, you know, I've heard in, in interviews that, uh, that with David Ritz says that he, you know, was still smoking weed and, and drinking gin and syrup every single day. Um, so, you know, he had his, his substitutes. Yeah, they but, call it marijuana maintenance in AA, and and I think he was a practitioner. But unlike somebody like Johnny Cash or Ozzy Osbourne, where they have these legendary cleanup moments, and then they're constantly falling off the wagon. Or if you ever see yeah. them live, you know maybe they've got needle point pupils or something. Right, somebody really feel like did clean up his act, at least from the heroin. But the womanizing is totally unrepentant. And the two of those yeah. things had had a really negative effect on his marriage and his, his parenthood. I mean, if you see interviews with his kids, they'll talk about walking in on Ray, shooting up and, and cutting himself and bleeding everywhere and not even being aware of it. Or, you know, the, the he had a 27 year marriage uh, with one of his wives and, and that, you know, ended in 1977. You know, because of the womanizing and, and the heroin. So he was, you know, no rock star is going to be an easy partner. And and no. Ray was certainly no exception. And, and I think a lot of the stuff, you know, the joke was about, you know, if you're going to be in the Ray Letts, you got to let Ray. There's definitely this undercurrent of misogyny, oh, yeah, exploitation yeah, 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 yeah. of women that yeah, yeah, yeah. would not go over as well today as it did when he was alive. No. And what is so interesting, I, I think, uh, unfortunately... Um, that that was somewhat par for the course um, in in the entertainment business and probably in society in general. Uh, not you know not to you know excuse it at, at all. Um, but Ray has some stuff in here where it, it really sounds like he totally gets um, feminism and that. You know, he totally he, he says, you know, women have been, you know, getting hell for for a long time and, and they don't deserve it. And some some stuff you read in here is just incredibly modern. And, and uh, when when he talks about uh, his feelings on drugs, too, um, you know, you, you might be thinking that that you're reading some article from yesterday and then uh Again, he's got this modern thing and he's got this old school thing um, at the same time that, you know, he talks about how women really need to get their due. At the same time, he's he's talking about, you know, convincing uh, a, a woman to stay at the orgy and stuff like that. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. And then he talks about he he talks about his kids. And at some point, you're like, and then I had this kid, and then I had that kid, and then this other woman starts coming and saying, I got her kid. And I'm like. Ray, how many kids do you have? <laughs> do you yeah. know? According to Wikipedia, it's twelve kids by ten different women. So yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty uh, that, prodigious. That's a lot, Ray. That's yeah, just a lot. Um, yeah, I, I I think that um, you know what what Ray says is what it is, and and um, 
And certainly, at least when this book came out in 1978, uh, he was, he didn't seem particularly repentant about, um, about the ways that, that he treated women, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, especially his his you know wives who you know were, were constantly being disrespected, um, but uh, that was the era. That was 1978 for you. But let's hear one last Ray Charles song. This is "I Don't Need No Doctor." I Don't Need No Doctor, Ray Charles in the late 60s, written by uh, Ashford and Simpson and, and Amistad. Uh, incredible song, incredible stuff. Uh, somebody needs to do a book about Ashford and Simpson because they are, you oh, know, Valerie Simpson yeah. was just a musical genius and, and such a key part of musical history and working with Ray in addition to their Motown hits. But uh, only, uh, the one thing that we didn't get to that I wanted to was, was sort of his apprentice period because you know, we talked about how he failed the audition with Lucky Millinder, but I do want to mention that he played for Lowell Folsom. He, Absolutely. he produced yeah. and arranged Guitar Slim's Things I Used to Do um, and, and you know, played for Ruth Brown and others. And so he had a real apprentice period as well, uh, you know, the period when he was doing the Nat King Cole type imitation songs and having the minor R&B hits. He was also out on the road constantly and serving an apprenticeship for some very key artists. Any other final thoughts you, you want to have before we wrap? Um well, you know, I, uh, I, one thing is, is that, um, I was really impressed with, uh, with David Ritz's writing, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, really excited to, to, uh, keep going with this series because <clears throat> it's just an enjoyable read, uh, reading brother Ray is just like sitting down with, with, you know, Ray Charles sitting down with your, you know, unrepentant musical genius uncle. And, uh, and, um, he really captures the music. Like, as, as you said, um, um, Ray Charles was just everywhere for a long time. He was just one of those elder statesman people. <clears throat> so we know how he talks and everything. And so, you know, if there was a false sentence in here, you know, I think that either one of us would have been able to detect it. And uh, it just moves beautifully the way that, that, Ray talks and in that musical way that, you know, he also probably approaches music. Uh, and the other thing that I'd say to, to get back to, um, his interactions with jazz, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I forgot to, to mention just how influential this guy was to, uh, to jazz because, you know, in, in his, in his wake, um, you you start getting like Art Blakey and Horace Silver and uh, Ramsey Lewis and people like that who are really doing some like greasier stuff, stuff that's definitely still bop and, and all, but it's got some greasy, you know, real down home blues feel. 
going on in there. And then there's also the this other aspect of him, which is like uh, bringing the sort of bop innovations of of jazz into pop in this really cool, sometimes still greasy uh, way, um, which I, I think, you know, I don't think you get James, any of James Brown's eras probably w- without uh, Ray Charles uh, or Etta James. And I don't think you get, you know, Marvin Gaye or, or Steely Dan or Stevie Wonder either. Absolutely. Um, or Charlie Pride. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To, I think, to make it back to country, yeah. Yeah, he definitely laid the groundwork commercially. And yeah, your jazz thing, and I'm just starting to explore this, but like Cannonball Adderley, yeah. uh, you know, plays with Miles Davis, but then he has kind of more of a pop move in the 60s. Mercy, and mercy, I, think he's, mercy, yeah. I think he's definitely following the Ray Charles lead and the whole birth of smooth jazz. Uh, maybe you could even blame Ray for Kenny G if you, if you take it out yeah. far enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but he he kept a commercial lane open for jazz, I think, and and that's easy to underrate as somebody like myself who grew up on Ornette Coleman and free jazz and Albert Eiler and all this stuff that had you know no or negative commercial impact. But <laughs> but uh, you know what Ray was doing and what his acolytes did in his wake reached a whole lot of people and, and that impacted music in just a massive way. So yeah, well, coming into this, I was thinking of Ray as somebody who's this absolute stone innovator early on who becomes this sort of retro force um, later on. But I think that's wrong. I, th- I, th- I think Ray continued to innovate and pioneer all the way through. And even just being an African-American celebrity in the era that he did was absolutely trailblazing. You know, now King Cole dies very young, tragically of, of lung cancer. Ray picks up the torch and just carries it all the way through the end of the 20th century. And it's just an incredible accomplishment. So Brooks, uh, this Brooks Long special guest will be back for more. There are David Ritz book club. The book is brother Ray, Ray Charles, own story. Are we going to do Marvin Gaye next or Aretha or what? Um, I'm, I'm down for, for anything. I, I've, uh, I'm sitting right here with, uh, with divided soul. Uh, well, let's, so, do, let's do Marvin next. I think that was that was Ritz's next book. And that's one that Ritz yeah. wrote himself because of Marvin Gaye's tragic yeah. passing at the hands of his father. So, Brooks, looking forward to it. It's been fun. We'll see you next time. All right. Great talking with you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with music journalist and music biz veteran Michael Oberman to discuss his book, Fast Forward, Play and Rewind, a chronicle of the touring musicians of the late 1960s, including some legendary anecdotes about David Bowie's first visit to the USA. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Brother Ray, His Own Story, is available from DeCapo Press. 
Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.